uh, am not a big fan of reality TV, but I know many people are. Um, I want to ask for a show of, no, I won't ask for a show of hands, but who enjoys the latest season of Married at First Sight? Oh, mumble, mumble, mumble. We got one who's willing to put their hand up. I know that plenty in the band uh, love Married at First Sight. What are the other reality TV shows we've got? Master Chef, The Block, Survivor, The Voice, and of course, Big Brother. And, and I know why people love these shows. It's not because you want to learn how to cook, because I've never been able to do anything on MasterChef in my kitchen, so it's obviously not that. It's, uh, it's not the block, because, well, I can't build stuff, and uh, it's not why we watch the show, and, well, plenty of you are already married and watching Married at First Sight, so that's not the reason for watching the show. The reason we watch these shows is for the expose, the insight into another person's life, their thinking, their motivations, their pains, their hurts. I did watch the first few seasons of Big Brother. And uh, so that was many years ago. Kids might have to look that up. But um, there was the part of the show where it had the diary room. And a person would sit and they would, they would tell the camera what they were thinking or what they were feeling about this and that and everything else. That was this incredible insight that really tickled the entertainment bone in a lot of people. And it was even better if their views were, were, were controversial in some sort. They were mildly racist or sexist or elitist in some way. And, and you just knew that it was going to turn out in some form of conflict. That's great to watch, right? That's entertaining. And I learned a word this week. Someone described it as salacious. What a great word, isn't it? It is what it sounds like, salacious. <clears throat> I'm losing my voice, but that's all good. Now, here in Philippians 2, we have an expose. An expose of the mind of Jesus. Sure, it tells us what Jesus did, who Jesus was, but it gives us an insight into what he was thinking and why he did some of these things. And I love this text. It's one of my favourite texts in Scripture. The other thing it does for us is it gives us a little bit of an insight into the mind of Paul who wrote it. So Paul, uh, if you are here last week, you would have heard Paul is in prison and he is writing this letter to a bunch of people he really loves. A bunch of guys he really had a lot to do with. They did ministry together. They were a team. They were comrades. And uh, he, he loved them, like brothers and sisters. And they were good friends and I get the sense in this text, the more you read it, the more I get the sense that this was Paul understanding that this is probably going to be the last time he talks to them. He's in prison. He's been there for a while. He's been unwell for a while, tradition tells us. And there's every likelihood he's not going to be released before he dies. And of course, tradition tells us that he certainly wasn't. So this is kind of like his last, his last letter to them. And here we have in chapter 2 a pleading with these guys to say, look, if you have learned anything from our time together, if you've experienced anything of the Holy Spirit, if you have any understanding of God, then do this one thing. Love each other. For my sake, he says, to make my joy complete, just love each other. 
And then he unpacks from verse 3. He unpacks what that means. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Be like Jesus, he says. Have the same mind as Jesus. The same attitude. Well, we called this series, uh, in Philippians, we called it the gospel changes everything. And here we find the mind becoming part of us. The mind of Christ becoming integrated into our thinking and our minds. And when our minds change, the whole world changes. The gospel changes everything. There are three things in this passage that it tells us about Jesus. Really simple stuff. He was God. He became human. And being human, he humbled himself to the point of death even on a cross. And each one of these three statements gives us a lot of stuff to think about. A lot of stuff to reorient our minds around. And so I want to unpack just a couple in each, each of these statements. I want to unpack a couple of thoughts that we see and may need to integrate into our thinking. Alright, Jesus is God. There is no text, passage or book in scripture that is as clear dramatic and intense as this claim that Jesus was God. A lot of others imply it. A lot of other times Jesus uh, talks about his own divinity. A lot of other places. But none of it is as clear, succinct and powerful as the way Paul has worded it here. Who, being in very nature God. Sorry, we're at verse 6. Next next slide. In your relationships, one other have the same mindset. Who was being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Now I want to draw out the word um, very nature God, because that word in Greek is interesting to me because the interesting because uh, the word is morphe, and we use the word morphe a lot in our English language, don't we? We have metamorphosis primarily is what I'm thinking of, or you have face morph. Has anyone tried the face morph kind of? thing where you can make your face look younger or older. And I do that just every morning. But you, you can do this with your app and, and you can morph things. And you can change the shapes of things. Because morph in our language means to change the shape of something. To sh- change its outward form and, and appearance. But in the Greek, the word is morphe, which simply means the essence or the nature, which means that no matter what you do to the external appearance, it is still the essence of that thing. Does that make sense? Being in very morphe God. So I really appreciate here the NIV where it says in very nature God. Because I think in English that's as close as I think we are going to get. But it's not quite close enough. Paul is saying Jesus Christ has the very unique and very identical qualities that make God God. Jesus Christ is the very substance of God. This is his claim. Jesus Christ is the very characteristic of God. He is the very being of God, all those things wrapped up in one word, morphe. That is strong language. A clear statement that Paul believes Jesus was and is God. What about though, what about those people who say it's probably a myth? You know, they, they, they say that over time, 
You know, Jesus was probably a great preacher, a great teacher, a great prophet, the great founder of a religion. But over time, it was only over time that his followers began to think of him as, as God. It was only over time and as the religion spread and as, as the Greek and the Roman influence came onto the, to the scene and, and, and over time people began to develop this idea that Jesus was God. Have you ever heard that kind of historical argument? Anyone? That, that the, the historical Jesus is different to the Jesus we understand him to be? Well, I want to tell you that this text interestingly stands up against that kind of thinking. When some would say that Jesus never claimed to be God and that his earliest followers never claimed that he was God, when they say that, you can point to this text. This ancient text written in the first generation after Jesus was crucified. It's likely that a copy of this letter came into the hands of the original apostles. And they would have read it. And they didn't have an issue with it. At least not in their writings either. This text makes it very clear that Jesus considered himself equal to God, even though he decided to lay aside all the advantages of that divinity in order to be human. Now, particularly, if you have a look at verses 6 to 11, I don't know if you've got them on your phone or how well it's rendered, but if you have a look in a, in a text of the written Bible, you will see that um, the font is quite indented, that the lines are all indented and duplicated and, and so on, because this text from 6 to 11 is, is poetry. This is poetry that Paul is actually quoting so the text itself, even though Paul is quoting it, is older than Paul writing. So, and, and it is very clear in, its, um, in what it says and what it claims. It claims that Jesus was God. It's poetry, it's uh, quoted, it's probably a lyric or a hymn or a rap song, I don't know. But it has meter, it has rhyme, it has all the, all the elements of Greek poetry. R and B A D. Now, you like that? Tickle somebody's funny bone. That's good. The understanding that Jesus was divine is a key component of the faith from the earliest days. And we have plenty of textual record that shows that Jesus himself and the quotes that, he's, that we have of him claims the same thing. Okay, right. So, Jesus is God, what do I want to draw out of this thinking? What do I want to draw out of this thinking? First of all, I want to say this. Jesus is God, then you must get a little bit more optimistic about your life. I want you to think about that. If Jesus Christ, if this is Jesus Christ who has come into your life and who says like the songster's son, I'll love you, I'll never leave you, never forsake you, I'll always be with you. If this is God who says this, if he is committed to you, then I think sometimes we're a little bit too pessimistic about our future. I come across people who are a little bit too pessimistic about ever changing a habit, or ever dealing with grief, or ever finding a partner in life, or ever finding a job, or ever finding joy at all. They think perhaps it's not possible. But I want to tell you, this Jesus 
is God. He will never leave you, never forsake you. Secondly, now, if Jesus is God, and he claims to be God, his earliest followers claim him to be God, then uh, if you've read the newsletter, you'll see I pick up this point. You have to be very careful about how you react. You can't really have a mild reaction to him. Um, I I didn't say it, but the, the words that I wrote come from, in the newsletter article, the blog post, they come from John Stott's book. John Stott's a, a famous Christian writer and he has a book called Basic Christianity. Great, go read it. Short book, easy to, sort of easy to read, right? And in it he says, look, nobody who ever met Jesus face to face ever had a mild reaction to him. You know, they either hated him, wanted to kill him or run away or do something like that, or they loved him, they followed him, they worshipped him. You kind of can't have this mild, lukewarm reaction to Jesus. You, you know, either he claims to be God, and if his claim is a lie, then he's a megalomaniac and you shouldn't have anything to do with him. You can't just, well, you should hate him too. But it's not a lie. He is God. He is God. That deserves our worship. The whole of our lives revolving around him. So, number one, Jesus is God. Number two, Jesus became human, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of being made in human likeness. Okay, so we we had a look at the word morphe, the bit of Greek there. Um, I won't unpack the Greek it is much detail in this one. Enough to say that the grammar of this statement is continuous, which means this. What it is not saying is that Jesus was in heaven and he took off this divinity in order to come to earth and put on humanity. There is no disconnect in the language. The language says he was divine. He came to earth He became human, but he never lost the divinity. He never took it off. He was and is and always will be divine. He was and is and always will be now human. Our uh, statements of faith say he's truly and properly God and truly and properly man. You can twist your mind inside out trying to figure that one out, but it's true. So what does it mean then for our thinking? What are the two things that we get out of this statement? Well, I think I want to draw out this. Number one, uh, and I touched on this at Christmas time, but the number one point is matter matters. Yeah? So our God is the only God in world religions to whom matter, this stuff, matters. In in the Roman and, and Greek, the Western kind of religions, matter was seen as something... Pure, uh, impure or, or polluted or, or broken or dirty in some fundamental way. That's why human beings behave in bad ways, because they're fundamentally ev- like this dirt, you know, the dirt of the world. Human beings are just that. The world is that. Okay, but in the Eastern religions, in the Eastern religions, we have this understanding that the world, the universe, the everything is, is an illusion. It's not really there. It's kind of this nothingness. 
our God came to earth and took into himself all that is physical, all that is human, body and mind. Colossians 2.9, Paul writes it this way. He says, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. That's incredible, right? Because that shows us if God can inhabit the human, if God can inhabit the, the matter of matter, then it can't be fundamentally flawed, right? It can't be fundamentally evil. And it can't be fundamentally pointless and an illusion. So, what do we think? God values physical existence. God values you, your body, your mind. And they're just as important as your soul and spirit. Your body and mind are holy. Not polluted, not pointless. It's not to say you can't do some pretty awful things with it. But in and of itself, it is not polluted and broken. Secondly, God is concerned with the physical of, of all of humanity. He is concerned with hunger. He is concerned with homelessness. He is concerned with addiction. He is concerned with sexual abuse and homelessness and violence and things that are the things that we are concerned with. Because the physical matters. It's important. We can't write it off just by being super spiritual and avoiding the reality. It's important to God. We know that because he became human. This is why, as followers of Jesus, we talk about the salvation of the soul and social welfare and well-being in the, in the same breath. It's a core part of what we believe from this text. And the second thing that I want you to think about is this. God understands. The realisation that we have from the fact that God became human is that we have a God who understands. Uh, the writer of the Hebrews writes this really, really well, and, and we'll take that up another time, but... Because he is human, he understands what it is to be betrayed, denied. He understands what it is to be tired. He understands what it is to be hungry. He understands what it is to be rejected, avoided. He understands all that it is to be tempted, to struggle. He understands. You don't have a God who is devoid of human experience. You don't have a God who is just out there. You have a God who has been here. And who lives there with that knowledge and would bring his presence to you in every situation with understanding, empathy and compassion. God has experienced it all. And the final statement we have about Jesus in this text is that he became a servant. Could have come as a king. Have you thought about that? He could have come as a king. He could have come as a general. He could have come as a lord. He could have come as anything he wanted. But he came and he became a servant. Having been found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And as a result, as a result of that fact, God exalts him to the highest place, gives him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. What Paul does in this text is he reveals Jesus' thinking. Jesus has all the power and authority of heaven and he decides, he thinks and he decides to come to earth and become human. 
He has the ability to be born as any human he likes. But he thinks and he decides to be born as a servant. The lowest of the low, homeless for years. He could have rained down fire from heaven while they persecuted him. But he didn't. He held his power and authority on behalf of others rather than on himself. And the others are us. That's what we believe. That's what we know to be true. And Paul's desperate desire is that we, followers of Jesus, would do the same thing. This is where it gets hard. That we would engage our minds in the same way. And decide to use whatever strength, power and authority we have in the service of others. Not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought, but treating others as better than ourselves. This is the definition of humility. It is a thought process, a decision-making process. To decide to use your strength, your resources in the service of others. It's, it's not an automatic thing. It's not a normal thing in our culture. It's not a, it doesn't even seem to be a natural thing to do. It's divine. It's something we need to practice with the Holy Spirit. Time and time again, in our one-to-one interactions with people, we need to stop and to think. To have the same mind as Jesus, who was willing to give up all of heaven and die for you. The same Jesus who was willing to give up all of heaven and die for the person you're talking to. Whether you're in conflict with that person or not have the same mind to be like Jesus this hope possesses me we're going to sing that song again if we can find a there's Anne she's hiding behind Colin I don't know how this sits with you I don't know if you are in conflict with somebody whether they know you're in conflict with them or not I don't know whether you have difficulties with another person. Whether you struggle with the way someone else treats you. Or has treated you. I don't know how easy it is for you to think through and make that decision to make their needs greater than yours. It's not easy at all. It wasn't easy for Jesus either. That's our calling, to have the same mind as Jesus had. If I had to come and to pray as we sing this song, to kneel here and say, God, help me. How do I, how do, I do that with this person? Help me. Give me the same mind. Give me the same heart that you have, because I want to be more like you. like to sing with me? Would you like to stand and sing with me? Let's stand to be like Jesus.